Daniel chapter 4, Pew Bible, page 1308. Daniel 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him, I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubles thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed, I saw and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. The height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven. And the sight thereof to the ends of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it. The fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, A watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, and he cried aloud and said, Thus, hew down the tree, cut off its branches, shake off its leaves, and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it, and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers, and the demand by the word of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men." This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof. For as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. 
the tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached into the heavens, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelled, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heavens had their habitation, it is thou, O king, thou art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reaches unto heaven, and thy dominion to the ends of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that they shall drive thee from men, that thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, that they shall make thee eat to gr of grass as an ox, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High rule in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree's roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee. Break off thy sins by righteousness, and in thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. All of this came upon the king, Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spoke and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And while the words was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. They shall drive thee from men. Thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men. And he did eat grass as an oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. And my counselors and my lords sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, extol, and honor the king of heaven. All whose works are truth, and his way is judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing on the sermon this morning. Father, we come before you again. We ask for wisdom as we 
study this chapter of Daniel. Help us understand its implications to our lives, that we would not be like Nebuchadnezzar here in his pride and arrogance, but that we would always keep your righteousness and power before our minds, that we would walk in righteousness before you and know that you work in the heavens and the earth and that no one can stay your hand. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a rather lengthy passage of scripture, but it tells a very succinct story of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you recall, this isn't the first time we've dealt with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. He's had a dream before, which the soothsayers and the magicians were unable to interpret, and only Daniel could. And uh, we know that Nebuchadnezzar had fake forms of repentance in previous passages of the book of Daniel. If you recall, when Nebuchadnezzar would see God's might through Daniel, he would often praise Daniel as your God is very mighty and powerful among the other gods. And, you know, we definitely need to show him some reverence. But he never did claim that he was Nebuchadnezzar's God. And nor did Nebuchadnezzar break off his pagan ways. For here we can see in Daniel 4 that yet again, despite his knowing that God is the only and true God, he still brought in the soothsayers and the magicians and the Chaldeans. He hadn't sent them away or killed them as he should have as a good king. Rather, he still kept them in his palace and still sought their wisdom. And yet again, Daniel was the last one that he sought after, as if Nebuchadnezzar was reluctant to yet again seek the Lord's face on this matter. However, Daniel 4 is unique Unlike the other passages of Daniel we've read, this one is written from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar, as if Nebuchadnezzar is writing this himself, and he very well may have written this. And if you notice, his tune is drastically different in this chapter. The words that he says are very different, and I believe that this event here, his being driven mad and given the heart of an animal, eating of grass till seven times pass over him, brought genuine repentance into the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And it would not surprise me if when we get to heaven, we actually see Nebuchadnezzar there. His tune is very different. He speaks of God as his God now. And at the end of his uh, trial and tribulation of being driven from men, he looks up to heaven and extols and lauds the power of Almighty God and says that no one can stay his hand, that he is truly the one and only God, and governs the armies of heaven. As if, no matter what spiritual being there may exist, none compare to the Almighty God. We know that the theme that we have seen in, pre in the previous dream, which should have taught this to Nebuchadnezzar, was that the kingdoms of the world would be ground to powder under the kingdom of Christ that would come. The first thing I want us to look at here specifically regarding Nebuchadnezzar's ordeal and his dream is the blindness that comes through sin and wickedness. In this particular case, Nebuchadnezzar's sin was pride, which we will look at in a moment. But the first thing I want us to look at is the blindness that comes through sin we see here that Nebuchadnezzar was, was very boastful and prideful. In verse 29, it says he was walking in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. 
And he was saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And this is when God's wrath came down upon him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's judgment for his sin was complete and utter madness. He lost all understanding of being a man. Now, this is the most dramatic example of God's judgment upon a man bringing blindness to him in a way that he forgot that he was even human. But sin and God's judgment upon us for sin is usually always coming in the form of blindness in some degree. Nebuchadnezzar's was the most dramatic of nature. But in Romans 1, for instance, we see that when men had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, that God, it says, turns them over to a depraved heart. And that in that depravity, they carry on with all manner of wicked deeds that violate even the laws of nature. Meaning that they do things that oppose even the basest feelings and desires of men's hearts. They violate basic human instinct. They rebel against family. And what do you see today in the transgender movements and things like that? You see uh, mutilation, self-mutilation, mutilation of children. You see the murder of the unborn. You see things that violate the basic instincts and laws of nature. It's inbred in us, outside of God's law. It's it's ingrained in us to protect our children, not destroy them. It is ingrained in men to be men. It is ingrained in women to be women. And yet what do we see when sin is unfolding in the world around us and God turns us over to that blindness, we begin to violate the very basic instincts that are built into mankind. Just like Nebuchadnezzar ate of grass and lived like an animal in the woods, it might not be that dramatic for us today, but most certainly blindness occurs through sin. Even in the lives of Christians, blindness can befall us. In 2 Corinthians 4, it tells us that I've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ brings light. Throughout the scriptures, it tells us that those that are not in the light live in the darkness and that they stumble forward in that darkness to their own destruction. No man would willingly stumble towards death, but yet through sin, we become blinded and we not only stumble towards it, but we run headlong towards death and the things that will not only destroy us temporally in this world, but eternally in hell. This speaks of the truth of God's light shining upon our hearts so that we might see the truth. 
while those left in the darkness are blinded to the truth of God. I was reading in uh, Charles Spurgeon's devotional of the other morning, and he was speaking of how sin removes us from the light of God, and it puts us into a cloud where we cannot see the light of God. Even as Christians, when we cherish and we revel in our sins, a form of blindness comes upon us. We're taken into a shadow where we cannot see. I know I've witnessed this in my own life and in the life of others. Sin blinds the heart and the mind, sometimes to a greater or lesser degree, but God's judgment upon men is blindness to the truth. Wickedness and expounding wickedness is God's judgment. Oftentimes we look around the world today and we see the wickedness and we think that, does God not see? Does God not want to stop this? How could a righteous God allow these things to happen? But oftentimes God allows these things to happen because this is the judgment that God has decreed upon these people. He unleashes their wickedness because we're told God holds back the wickedness of men. But sometimes he turns them over to their wickedness because that wickedness will not only destroy themselves, but those around them that they have influence over. And this sometimes is how God judges wicked behavior. So the first point today is to note that sin brings blindness to varying degrees. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, it was a very great degree to the, to the fact that he forgot he was man. Our second point here is to look at how God detests pride. Nebuchadnezzar's sin in this case was pride. What's very fascinating to me is that despite his wickedness and his pagan antics that had gone on for presumably decades... God did not specifically bring down this decree because of those things. That's not what was listed in the dream. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar because you worship other gods, because you're a pagan, because you uh, pursue witchcraft and magic, because you consort with demons. No, it didn't say any of those things. It said it was because of his pride and the fact that he did not acknowledge God as the source for all things, which does account for his other actions. But it was specifically the sin of pride that God detested and judged him for in this case. We read where he walked out on his balcony and he was speaking of his own might and his own glory and his own majesty that had created Babylon and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. This was when the voice from heaven spoke to him. It wasn't when he was in some sort of seance. It wasn't when he was consorting with demons and soothsayers. It was when he walked out and he spoke blasphemous, prideful words against the God of the universe. God detests pride. And oftentimes we as Christians kind of turn a blind eye to pride. Pride sometimes is... Uh, pawned off as some sort of like uh, confidence or uh, knowledge, but it's not. Pride is very clear in the scriptures that God hates it. Daniel, in verse 27, seeing the interpretation of the dream, encourages Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his sins. And he says, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee. Break off thy sins by righteousness. Thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility and thy peace. 
He didn't know if this would even stop the judgment of God upon Nebuchadnezzar for his pride, but he said, perhaps the Lord will extend your peace if you humble yourself and you show mercy to the poor and you break off your sins. God repeatedly condemns pride in the scriptures. Just in Proverbs alone, Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Proverbs 11.2, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 16.5, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16.18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We're told that the angels that sought to lift themselves up to be like the Most High were brought low because of the rebellion, which was the sin of pride. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul speaks of God sending him a messenger of Satan to torment him so that he would not become prideful because of the great knowledge that the Lord had given to him. And what's interesting to note here is that that word messenger is actually angelos, which is angel. The Lord sent Paul, an angel of Satan, to torment him so that Paul would always have to seek the face of the Lord and not become prideful in his knowledge that the Lord had given to him. All of this to say that God detests pride. What was the sin in the Garden of Eden? Nothing more than pride. You will be like unto God if you eat of this fruit. Did God really say, don't you know better than God? Pride caused the fall of men. It caused the fall of some of the holy angels. It caused the fall of many godly and ungodly men throughout history. And it caused the fall of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. We learn here the importance of humility before God, not to be proud and lifted up in heart. This can be boastful behavior, as we see from Nebuchadnezzar, but it can also be sinful actions and rebellion to God, thinking that we know better or that God won't punish us because we know what we're doing. Rebellion to the paths of righteousness can be a form of pride. The third thing that I want us to look at today is the fact that God judges and rules the nations and determines who rules and reigns in the kingdoms of men. This was the primary point that God wanted to get across to Nebuchadnezzar. This was abasing his pride and letting him know that it was not because of his might and his majesty that he was able to reign over Babylon, but because of God's might and God's majesty and it says that he appoints even the basest of men to rule. Saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you're nothing but a base man, and I have given you the majesty that you have. This was God's intent in what he accomplished through Nebuchadnezzar's ordeal. In verse 25, it says, They shall drive thee from men, thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as the ox, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomsoever he will. Whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. In Acts, we're told that God has established the nations and the boundaries of the habitations of people. In Genesis, with the dispersion of the nations, we see God establishing the nations against their own desires in Babylon. 
Remember with the Tower of Babel, they decided to do something that God had not commanded them to do, and he dispersed the nations, and he broke them up, and he divided them into languages and regions and geographical boundaries. We see in Deuteronomy that the Lord divides up the nations and establishes their rules and their boundaries. In Isaiah 40, we're told, Behold, the nations are but a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he takes up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him as less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare unto him? And of course, we see repeatedly throughout the scriptures, God raising up kings and tearing them down. In Romans 9, we see God hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let Israel go so that God could show his majesty and might through the plagues and destruction upon Egypt that he brought eventually with the Red Sea, swallowing up the armies of Pharaoh. Therefore, we should take hope and heart that God does not make mistakes that God raises up kings and he sets them down and that even today our leaders that God has established, no matter how terrible they are or how great they are, was done by God on purpose for a set time and a set agenda. This does not mean that Christians do not have a duty to resist wickedness, nor should we not resist evil commands as we saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego resisting the evil of Nebuchadnezzar previously. But they understood that God had established this for a reason and that God could also deliver them from the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar if God so chose to. God establishes kings and dominions. He rises up nations and he destroys nations. He rules with a rod of iron and no one can stay his hand or ask what he is doing. Paul elaborates that in Romans 9 even more saying we are the pottery and God is the potter. And who can say to him, why did you make me this way or what are you doing? Finally today I want to look at what the title of the sermon hinted to, <clears throat> at which was the phrase and the implications in this passage regarding the watchers. The sermon title was By Decree of the Watchers, and we see this occur in verse 17. If we start in verse 16, it says, Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him. Let it seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. The word here for watchers is not used elsewhere in the scriptures in this way. But if you understood historical uh, documents and extra biblical texts, the word watchers was commonly used in the ancient world. In Second Temple, uh, Second Temp Temple Judaism, they used this term regularly in their writings. The term watchers here references holy angelic hosts. Daniel says as much when he says, when you saw a watcher, a holy one of God descending, and then he explains what it means. 
and what implications followed from that. But the term watcher here references a holy and angel who has authority in this situation to bring Nebuchadnezzar low. In apocryphal works, the watchers were told to be holy angels that God sent to govern over the affairs of men and that God established them over particular nations. This is seen throughout the scriptures as well. In the New Testament, we're told that there are various degrees of angelic hosts and they have various dominions and powers. In the book of Daniel, we read of the prince of Persia and the, per the prince of Greece that opposed the holy angels sent to Daniel. We see that Michael the archangel had to come and assist Daniel in this. We're told that Michael is uh, the guardian over Israel. We're told throughout the New Testament that there are the various degrees of principalities and powers in the hosts of heaven, that they have ranks and file. In Revelation, we're described particular angels and what they do. Some guard the throne of the Lord. And we're told of a heavenly council that is established in heaven. Not only is this mentioned in uh, extra biblical text, but it's mentioned in the Old Testament repeatedly. If you recall in the book of Job, we're told that there was a day when the sons of God or the angelic hosts uh, appeared before the Lord's throne and Satan was among them. And in this we see Satan reasoning and speaking with the Lord as if the holy angels come before the throne of God as a king who is established and has a counselors around him and an entire room, just like Nebuchadnezzar had his counselors and soothsayers and magicians, the Lord, by his own decree, he doesn't need this. The Lord doesn't need us and he doesn't need the holy angels. But for some reason, God uses means to establish his word and his authority and his power. God uses me right now to preach the word to you. And he's established this in his word. He doesn't need me to do this. He could just reveal truths to you in your heart. And sometimes he does. But God has decreed for pastors to be established to preach the word. And we're told in the, in the word of God that God uses the preaching of the word to sanctify his church. God uses you to go into the world and preach the gospel. It says that God doesn't just save people willy-nilly. He saves them after you have preached the gospel to them. God uses earthly means to accomplish his heavenly ends. He doesn't have to do that, but he has decreed it to be so. In the same way, he has established an entire angelic host, a council of heaven, by which he discusses and decrees and orders his will. It appears here in Daniel 4 that it, though it says it was by the decree of the Most High that this occurred, that the watchers themselves were the ones causing this to happen. Read verse 23. It says, Whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots. Till seven times pass over him. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord, <coughs> the king. Verse 25, they shall drive thee from men. Thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat the grass of the ox. They shall wet thee with the dew till thou know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. This is by decree of the watchers. 
So here it, it, it appears that the watchers themselves saw Nebuchadnezzar's pride and arrogance and knew that this was not holy and good. And by their decree, under the will of God, they drove Nebuchadnezzar. They caused the madness in his heart. They brought about this judgment. Daniel speaks here in the plural. They, not God, but they drove him from men. In Deuteronomy 32.8, there's an interesting scripture that says, The Most High divided to the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of Adam. He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Now, this verse doesn't seem super applicable. But in the Septuagint and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, instead of saying the children of Israel in this passage saying that the Lord set up the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the children of Israel. In the Septuagint and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says that God set up the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the angels of heaven. As if God had established angels to watch over certain nations and people groups. And of course, we see in other passages of Scripture in the New Testament, similar jurisdictions of heavenly hosts being mentioned. In Hebrews 2, as Sam went over last week, we saw that the law of God and the words and the prophecies had been handed down to us, spoken of by angels. And it told us that it was not to angels that he subjected the world that is coming, of which we are speaking, but someone somewhere has testified in Revelation Excuse me, in the revelation of God, the world to come will not be governed by angels, but by Christ alone. And we know that Christ is head over all things now, that he's established these heavenly hosts to execute his power in the kingdom of God. In Revelation, the letters to the churches are written to the angels of the churches, whether ministers of God or spiritual entities, it uses that term. And we're told that some have entertained angels without knowing it. We see in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah that the Lord sent his holy angels to come to the city to see what it was doing. And it was those angels that destroyed the city. Other places we read of God's heavenly counsel where he discusses the affairs of men. I mentioned Job earlier, but if you recall in, um, in 1 Kings 22, it says... Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing on the manor and another said something else on the manor. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets. So here we see in the council of heaven, God seeking the counsel of these heavenly hosts, though he has already determined from the beginning of time what he will do. He uses these means for some reason to accomplish his purpose. And the angels provided counsel to the Lord and said one thing and another said another idea. And a spirit came before the Lord and offered to go be a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets. And the Lord sent that spirit to deceive Ahab. And he went up and he fell at Ramoth Gilead. Of course, in Job, we're reminded of Job's lamenting and the Lord appearing to him saying, who is it that darkens my heavenly counsel by words without knowledge? 
We know that the Lord uses means to accomplish his purposes. He uses fallen men. He uses angelic hosts to accomplish his kingdom and to grow his power and his might. Therefore, it is not a stretch to say that these passages that God has established a powerful heavenly host that governs over the affairs of men to execute the decrees of God and to bring all glory and honor to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We know that the scriptures speak of some of these holy angels sinning against God. In Jude, it tells us that, that some of these angels fell in some sort of sin, which is elaborated on elsewhere in the scriptures. But it says that these angels are kept in chains of darkness until the day of judgment. So whether wicked or holy angels, God uses all as we see Satan appear before the Lord at his throne. Nothing happens outside of God's will. In God's decree, there are no men or angels that can stay the hand of God or say, what are you doing? And this is what Nebuchadnezzar came to realize through his uh, great fall and his abasement before the Lord. When he came to, he gave all glory and honor and praise to God, saying that God rules in the affairs of men and gives to men whatsoever he desires them to have. And we're told that the Lord has chosen to save a people to himself. For some reason, he has saved us. And it tells us that what God is doing in us and the works that God is doing in our hearts and the redeeming plan that he has established, that angels long to look into it and understand it. But these secrets, it tells us, have been revealed to us and the angels long to understand it and to seek after it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your might and your power. We thank you that you are an almighty God, that you have established your kingdom, that it grows, that nothing can stop its increase, that your government and peace will have no end. We thank you, Lord, that you established the kingdoms of men. <coughs> we thank you, Lord, that no one can stay your hand, that you rule and you reign and you decree all things whatsoever come to pass. Lord, we thank you that we can rest in this holy might of your hand and that nothing, no principalities, powers on this world or in the spiritual world can take us out of your hand. That you hold us, that you keep us, that you sanctify us, and that you will one day glorify us to be in your image. We, we thank you and praise your name today. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>